Rachel was a high school senior. She left the house that morning like any other morning to go to school. She had no idea that before the day would be over, she would give her life for the cause of Christ. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 21. If you're new with us or newer with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Took a little time off for the holidays. Getting back at it in chapter 21. And we'll uh, run it now through the end of the book, right before Easter. Just a quick review. Paul is on what we call the third missionary journey. He's on his way back home to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has spoken to Paul and told him he is to go to Jerusalem. He wants to be there by Pentecost, and he's also been told that bonds and afflictions await him there. We pick up the story then in chapter 21, verse 1. When we had parted from them and set sail, we ran a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, the ship was to unload its cargo. So a couple things for starters. There are four what we call we passages in the book of Acts. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and there's four times where he clearly joins the missionary team and includes himself. So you notice verse 1, we. So Luke is writing as an eyewitness to these events in this particular section. In order to understand really what's happening, we're going to throw a map up on the screen. Give you a little sense of where this story takes place. So the missionary journey starts in Antioch, moves through familiar places like Ephesus, all the way up here to Philippi, to Berea, which is our namesake, all the way down to Corinth, and then back. So Paul is right here at Miletus, which is where chapter 21 starts. He's going to go to a very small port here in Cause another very small port in Rhodes. These would have been small ships that stayed really close to shore, very small ports, till he hit uh, Patera. This was a huge port. You can tell just by the location it was prime. Here he would have picked up a large cargo ship that was equipped to not hug the shore, but to cut across the Mediterranean, go to the south of Cyprus, all the way to Tyre, where they would unload. He'll go then south about 25 miles to Ptolemaeus, go south another 32 miles to Caesarea, and then on foot or horseback, the final 65 miles to Jerusalem. So that's basically the storyline as it relates to the map. We pick it up then in verse 4. 
After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. So they're in the city of Tyre. They're going to unload. They're there seven days. Probably took seven days to unload and reload. He's waiting for the next ship because he's in a bit of a hurry. There's an interesting dynamic here related to the believers. It says Paul went out searching for the believers, the church entire. But this is not a church that Paul planted. As far as we know, he had never been here at this church before. So the dynamic is 20 years before this. In Jerusalem, Stephen was martyred, stoned to death for his proclamation of Jesus. We are told that the Hellenistic Jews, meaning the Greek-speaking Jews, fled Jerusalem and landed in Tyre. They landed in Antioch and a few other places. So likely this church was planted through the persecution that drove these Christians out of Jerusalem. They settled in Tyre. It is likely that the last time these people saw Paul, he was actually a Pharisee by the name of Saul, whom we are told stood in hearty agreement of the execution of Stephen. So just imagine what this first encounter would have been like. I'm sure they had heard of Paul's conversion, but it's still not the same as seeing him face to face. He meets them, stays seven days, and the text says, through the Spirit telling them not to set foot in Jerusalem. The grammar would be telling Paul again and again not to go. So what does that mean? It certainly could not mean that the Holy Spirit told them to tell Paul not to go. Because that would contradict what the Spirit has already told Paul. The Spirit told Paul that he is to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit has told Paul that bonds and afflictions await him there. I think the most likely explanation is the Spirit told them the same thing. Their conclusion then was he should not go. Remember, they fled the persecution to go to Tyre. So if there is persecution awaiting Paul in Jerusalem, they would conclude, don't go, flee, run. They're on a completely different page than Paul. We know that when Paul was converted, Jesus told him that he was being called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For the last 20 years, he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. He had been beat up, he had been imprisoned, he'd been stoned, he'd been whipped, 
It's been 20 years of persecution. This was nothing new. And he was certainly not about to be disobedient to his call in the final chapter. So while in their minds, if there's persecution, run. Paul understands he must go to Jerusalem. The text then tells us that all the families, men, women, and children, followed Paul and his uh, entourage. You remember they're carrying the offering that they've collected from these Gentile churches in order to take to Jerusalem to give them relief from the famine. So representatives of these churches are all with Paul as well as Luke. They all go to the beach. They have a prayer meeting on the beach. They send Paul on his way. They return home. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. So from Tyre to Ptolemaeus, about 25 miles, he stays for a day, catches the next ship to Caesarea, about 32 miles. Caesarea was an absolutely magnificent harbor built by Herod the Great. Caesarea was by far the most Roman city in the region. So Paul arrives there and stays with Philip. There was a Philip who was one of the 12 apostles, but this is not that Philip. This Philip is identified as one of the seven from Acts chapter 6, also identified as the evangelist who shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So we're told that he settled there. He has four virgin daughters. Now, for us, that's an odd way to describe these girls. But in that culture, it was simply a reference to their age. They were not yet old enough to be married. But they were prophetesses. In the first century, the New Testament church did not yet have a completed New Testament. So how they would learn New Covenant theology 
was through prophets and prophetesses. But the prophet that will speak on this occasion is an older prophet by the name of Agabus. We first met him in chapter 11. He predicted the famine in Jerusalem. He arrives on the scene, takes Paul's belt, which would have been a cloth belt that typically wrapped around your waist a couple of times and then was tied off. He binds his own feet, binds his own hands, and the prophecy is the owner of the belt will be bound and afflicted in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. Again, the conclusion of the people is then they must warn Paul not to go. If there's persecution in Jerusalem, go the other way. It's interesting that the text reads, we, as well as the local residents, Luke is including himself in that group. Having not fully at that point understood the plan of God, he joins in the group begging Paul, please don't go. To which Paul says, what are you people doing to me? Think about this. It's hard enough to imagine heading into such persecution. What he needed was encouragement. What he needed was comfort and prayer. Rather, they're just adding another level of sorrow and tension to all this by trying to persuade him not to go. He says, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. That's my assignment. Not only will I be bound for the cause of Christ, I'm ready to die if that's what God asks of me. One of the real interesting part of this, uh, interesting parts of Acts right here is that when Luke, who is the writer of Acts, is recording this, there is a parallel between what Luke records in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem and what he records about Paul and his final trip to Jerusalem. For example, things like multiple warnings not to go. And finally, this point of decision. I'm ready to go. Thy will be done. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul in Caesarea. One of the interesting things about the text is it says he remained there for several days. If you do the math of how long it takes to travel and all of that, he could have stayed there up to two weeks, which seems rather odd for a man in a hurry. But it's important to understand he is now in Caesarea. The rest of the journey is a two-day journey on foot. All the concerns about ships and weather and delays is over. 
He wants to be there for Pentecost. But he does not want to be there before Pentecost, lest he be arrested and not be there for Pentecost. So now it's very strategic timing to arrive in Jerusalem at just the right time. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. When it says we got ready, the Greek there typically is used of saddling horses. So it's most likely the final 65 miles were on horseback, a two-day journey. They ended up at the home of Manasin, someone we don't really know. There's debate about whether he was like halfway on a two-day journey or right outside of Jerusalem. What we do know is that he was a long-standing disciple of Jesus, most likely a reference to he was actually a follower of Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. Paul is now positioned to enter Jerusalem, knowing that bonds and afflictions await him. What is about to happen is very tense and very exciting. And we'll talk about it next week. What I'd like to talk about with the remainder of our time is this whole idea of a calling. It's really important to understand Paul did not have some sort of a death wish. Christian theology does not teach that you get extra perks with God for being a martyr. This was about being obedient to a calling. From the beginning, Jesus had been clear that Paul was called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He counted the cost and obeyed his calling. This is not new. It's been 20 years of getting beat up and imprisoned and persecuted. And Paul was absolutely committed to being obedient all the way to the finish line. When Jesus called his disciples, he was not unclear. He said, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. They hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you're going to follow me, that's what it is. 
This wasn't just some sort of a pep talk. These men would be persecuted. These men would be imprisoned. As far as we know, all but one of them would be executed for the cause of Christ. Jesus was telling them the truth. Count the cost. It's just very difficult for us as American Christians to get our head around this. To even comprehend what Jesus is talking about. Because it's so other than how we live as Christians. Even though this is foreign to our experience as American Christians, it's still true that until you find something that you're willing to die for, you haven't yet found anything worth living for. So what do we mean by this idea of a call? It's important to understand a call does not just refer to pastors and missionaries. Every Christian has a calling. And it's a high and holy calling. Paul admonishes us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. I've been called to be a pastor. Maybe you've been called to be a businessman or a businesswoman. Maybe called to be a financial planner. Maybe called to be a mechanic. Maybe called to be a homemaker. Maybe called to be a school teacher or a plumber or a construction worker. But it's very important to understand your vocation isn't ultimately your calling. It's merely a platform from which we fulfill our calling. Our calling is to represent Jesus to the world. Our calling is to go and make disciples. Our calling is to be a light in the darkness. Our calling is to fulfill the mission. Where God has us is simply the platform from which we fulfill our calling. The question we're wrestling with this morning is what is the cost of that calling? Certainly it will not look like it did with the Apostle Paul. But it's important to remind ourselves this morning, we do have brothers and sisters around the world where it does look exactly like the Apostle Paul. At this moment, they are persecuted. They're sitting in prisons 
and they are being executed. It does continue today. It's just so different from our experience as American Christians. Well, for certain, we could know that our calling is going to mean we simply don't fit in. We're going to be odd. We're citizens of heaven living on earth. And we just don't fit in. We are going to be out of step with popular culture. We are called to be a light in the darkness. But Jesus reminded us in John chapter 3 that the light exposes the sin in the darkness and the darkness does not like that. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we will not fit in. We will be laughed at, made fun of, mocked. We will be called names. We will be misrepresented. We will be called haters and other names that are very difficult to hear. And if we take our stand for truth, to be a light in the darkness, we will be canceled and canceled and canceled and canceled. That is the culture we live in. That is not pleasant for anyone. But here's the problem. Many American Christians have counted the cost and determined the price is too high. I will not do it. So rather they choose to blend in. They choose to align with the culture. They choose to go with the flow. To avoid the discomfort of standing for the truth. When asked why they do that, the most common answer is love. Armed with little Bible knowledge and a belief that love means anything goes. They blend in with the culture. I have to say that's a very strange definition of love. Not only have we ceased to be a light, 
that leads people out of their darkness into life. But we actually end up accepting and celebrating behaviors and beliefs that are offensive to God. We end up promoting things that will ultimately bring heartache and destruction. There's nothing loving about that. Let's be honest. To blend into the culture takes no courage whatsoever. Actually, what's happening is out of fear of the discomfort that would happen if we stood for truth. We're willing to sacrifice the well-being of the people around us because we're unwilling to tell them the truth about sin and its destruction. What compelled the Apostle Paul to go to Jerusalem was he loved these people. They hated him. Bonds and afflictions awaited him. Yet he was so compelled by his love for his fellow Jews that he was determined to tell them the truth about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him even if it cost him his life. That's love. Go back and read the Gospels. Jesus is love. He did not go with the flow. He did not assimilate into the culture, just the opposite. He spoke truth. He stirred up tension everywhere he went. Yes, it's true. Sinners, misfits, and losers flocked to Jesus. But it wasn't because Jesus approved of their sin. It's because Jesus identified their sin. And offered them forgiveness and a better way to the life they longed for through the salvation he would offer. If sin is no big deal to God, then there was no need to send a Savior. The whole story of Jesus is sin is destructive, but he offers salvation. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot have two lovers. You can't love the world and love God. You have to make a choice. Jesus said to his followers, if you want to find the life you're looking for. You must come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, taking off from that, famously said, 
When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so it would be with Bonhoeffer. As hard as it is to process this, in Germany under Hitler and the reign of the Nazis, the overwhelming majority of the Christian church blended into the culture and sided with Hitler. They didn't want to stir up the water. There was a remnant of the true church that took its stand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the leaders of that movement. On April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was walked to the gallows in a Nazi concentration camp. And there he was hanged for the cause of Christ. Three weeks later, the war ended. Bonhoeffer wrote several books, but interestingly enough, his most familiar is a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. It's not easy to stand for righteousness in a world of darkness. Anybody that knows me knows I have a heart for teenagers. I always have. I'll always be a youth pastor at heart. Haddon Robinson, who was my preaching mentor, used to say if you were to ask him to name the ten most courageous Christians he knows, five of them would be teenagers. I totally agree with that. I'm so thankful for courageous teenagers willing to take their stand. Rachel was a high school senior. She left for school this day like she did every other day. Over the lunch hour, she was seated in a grassy courtyard when two of her fellow students, Eric and Dylan, came up over the hill armed with weapons to kill. The first one shot was a young man by the name of Mark, an outspoken Christian, whom witnesses say at that moment was sharing the gospel with some of his classmates. He was shot multiple times. Very intentionally, the focus then turned to Rachel. She was first shot in the leg. Still trying to escape, she was shot through the chest. The boys then made their way to the cafeteria, where they shot a young man by the name of Danny, who was courageously holding the door open so his classmates could escape. They then went back to where Rachel had been shot and noticed she was still alive. Witnesses tell us that Eric grabbed her 
by the hair, picked her up off the ground by her hair, stuck a gun in her face, and asked her, do you still believe in God now? To which she boldly replied, yes, I do. And at that moment, he shot her in the head, and she went to be with Jesus. Several years ago, I had the privilege of sitting down at a table and enjoying a meal with Rachel's father, Daryl. I found him to be a gracious, humble, godly man. And he shared her story. He said she had been a Christian most of her life, but exactly a year before she was killed, she made a very deliberate decision that she was going to take her stand and represent Christ at her school. She shared with her family a couple of times and even wrote in her journal that she believed she would not live to be very old. She believed that God was calling her to give her life for the gospel. And she was willing to do so. Three weeks before she was killed, she sat in a classroom with two of her classmates, Eric and Dylan, and shared the gospel with them. She shared her concern over the violent videos that they were making. Witnesses say for the next three weeks, they publicly mocked her and made fun of her. Daryl told me when those two boys went on their murder spree, they were not randomly killing students. They were hunting and killing Christians. And Rachel was at the top of their list. Rachel had made a decision to walk in a manner worthy of her calling. Rachel Scott, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Apostle Paul, and thousands and thousands of other brave Christians have walked worthy of their calling. Certainly these are extreme examples. It isn't likely that's what we will face. But what is the cost? And is that a cost you're willing to pay? Are you willing to commit to walk worthy of your calling? To represent Jesus to the world? To choose to be a light in the darkness, to get, take your stand for righteousness, whatever the cost.
Because until you have found something that you have been, would be willing to die for, you have yet to find something worth living for. I've made my decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I invite you to join me. Our Father, may you raise up an army of brave, courageous Christians determined to walk worthy of our calling to rightly represent Jesus in a dark and needy world. In Jesus' name, amen.